So let's get back to, uh, to year in giving. I need to talk about this, so give me just a couple minutes to talk about this because I chickened out last Sunday. Uh, I have to do the ask today. We're raising money for Hope Center. Hope Center is a Christ-centered residential recovery center that we're hoping to build in Murray County in 2023. In order to do that, we got to come up with $260,000 before the end of the year. Um, and so that's a, that's a huge ask. I'm asking the church to, to, to raise, to donate $200,000 on December 18th, which is only a couple of weeks away. And uh, last Sunday, I had this whole talk planned after the video. We showed Josh and Casey's testimony, and I had this whole talk planned. But during the video, I chickened out. And I'm like, I can't talk about giving after that inspirational video, which most preachers would say, that's the perfect time to talk about giving. But I'm like, I can't ruin the inspirational video by talking about money. I'm, I'm just not going to do it. And so I chickened out. And um, this week, as I was preparing my message, I'm like... <laughs> It's not fair to this church, it's not fair to Hope Center, and it's not fair to the men and women who will be helped by this center for me not to do the ask. Like, I, I have to push past the discomfort and, and do the ask. And so, here's the ask. In two weeks, we need to raise $200,000. And that's a lot. That, it, that we've only done that one other time in the history of this church. And um, the first thing I did, I was kind of going through the math, and I'm like, well, okay, let's say $200,000. How many people gave to Murray Hills this year? We've had 362 people give this year. And so I was like, okay, so $200,000. If everybody gives $613.49, we're done. Uh, but that ain't going to happen, right? I mean, not everybody has $613 to give. Um, not all those givers are still at Murray Hills, and not all those, some of those givers were never at Murray Hills. They just gave to something. We do some special contributions through Kids Place or, um, what was it, Miracle League. And so some of them aren't even part of this church. And so if you know anything at all about uh, giving for nonprofits, it works like a pyramid, okay? There's a few people who can give a lot, and there's a lot of people who can give a little, and there's some people in between. So here's my ask, okay? And if, you're, if this is your first Sunday here, I'm not talking to you. You can turn me off for the next two minutes here. I'm not talking to you. We're not asking you to give on your first Sunday here. This is for our church family because we're trying to get this done. And let me tell you real quick. Uh, I was in a, an economic development meeting for the Murray Alliance, and the question of behavioral health and mental health came up, and our city manager, Tony Massey, said he would estimate that in the city of Columbia in 2022, they've averaged between one to two OD calls a week. One to two a week. And he said police officers have saved over 100 lives because of the training that they received on how to handle it. They've saved over 100 lives. And I was sitting in that meeting going, what happens to those 100 people after, after they're done with the, you know, they got to stay in the hospital for a mandatory two to three days or something. But what happens after that period? That's, that's why we got to have this Hope Center. And that's why I got to do this ask. I'm trying to talk myself into it as we go. Here's what I need. Let me show you some numbers. Here's my ask. I need four people in this church who will write a check for $20,000. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And I know you sit here and go, I could never do that. I'm not talking to you. If, you, if you're sitting here thinking, I could never do that, but there are, I do think we've got at least four. I don't know who they are. I think we've got at least four, maybe more, who could write that size of a check. If you can write a check for $20,000, we had four people do that. That's 40% of the total. I need six people who would write a $10,000 check. And again, that is nothing to sneeze at. I mean, that's a lot of money. And you're like, I, I, I just I couldn't write a check of that size. But again, 
I'm believing that there's at least six people out there that are saying, I could, I could do that. We had a good year in the business this year. Or we had, I don't know anybody had a good year in the market. But, you know, we had a, we had a, I got a good bonus this year. Whatever. People are like, I, I, could, I could do that. I think I could make that happen. Um, that gets us to 70%. That 12 right there, I'm just putting that as a range of like somewhere between 1,000 and 5,000. I didn't, I kind of started running out of math steam at that point. Like, it, it, there's, I think, at least a dozen people that could write a check somewhere between 1,000 to 5,000. That gets us to about 80, 85%. And then I put hundreds on that bottom one because that's the key to the whole thing. We need everybody giving as much as they can. And it may be 20 bucks, it may be 100 bucks, it may be 500 bucks, it, it may be $2. One of my favorite contributions to this church, I wish I'd have got it, I, it's in my desk drawer, is an envelope that Peyton White gave in 2009, and there was a dollar in it to our capital campaign to build the children's ministry. That's, I, I love, love, love that donation. And Peyton's now, what, she's a sophomore? Man, yeah, so she's a soft, sophomore in college now. She was probably five or six at the time. Uh, that she made that donation. So we need everybody. That, that hundreds is the key to the whole thing. We need, uh, if, a, if a lot of people give a little, then we'll get to our 200,000 goal. So um, that's the ask. Let me, let me pray about that, and then we're going to get into the message. Okay, so let me pray. Father, I, I do pray for this church to, uh, to, to step up and to do the impossible and to, to raise this money so that we can get Hope Center built. And... God, I pray that you would uh, continue to lead us in ways that we can be uh, for this city and ways that we can make a difference and an impact uh, for this city. And um, I just, I'm going to pray right now that it happens. I pray that it happens two weeks from now. I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, Romans 9. I know some of you probably looking at the clock going... Man, you've been doing a chapter a week. How in the world are you going to get through this? Well, good news. Doing three chapters today. Um, we're going to <laughs> I do have a plan. I have a plan. We're covering Romans 9 through 11 today. And uh, originally, I was just going to cover two chapters. Scott is preaching next Sunday. So you always hear Scott leading worship. Scott's going to preach next Sunday. And I had assigned chapter 11 to him. And then this week I started studying, I read chapter 11, and I texted Scott, and I said, that ain't fair. <laughs> I, can't, I can't give you chapter 11. That's just, it's just not fair. Um, it's probably, no offense to Paul, is probably the least interesting chapter in the book. Uh, beside the 16th, because that's just a bunch of, hey, thanks, love you, that kind of thing. But um, I just, I'm like, no, I can't give it to you. I'll just roll it in with this, and we'll do 9 through 11 today. And, uh, and I'll give you, Scott, the bet. I'm only giving him three verses, uh, one through three of chapter 12. So the reason I'm putting all this together is because uh, this is kind of a big section of Romans that kind of feels like an interruption. It's not an interruption, but it kind of feels like that. Like, it, you know, when Melinda a couple weeks ago said, you know how Paul can be verbose? As you read 9 through 11, you go, yeah, Melinda was right. Paul can be really verbose. I don't know what he's getting into right here. But, you know, the first eight chapters of Romans are all about salvation and justification and um, sanctification, you know, which is a bunch of big theological words. But it's all about how we're made right with God. And we're made right with God through Jesus. And so Romans 1 through 8 is this deep dive theologically. Then in Romans 12 through 15, it's all about, well, what does that look like? If we're saved by faith alone, if Jesus has saved us, then what does it look like for Christian people to live? How do we live out the principles of our faith? And so there's a lot of practical considerations in chapter 12. 
9 through 11 is this whole aside on the nation of Israel. And nobody except D, maybe D's the only one here, because you were picking up on me on Facebook. Uh, I said, nobody gets real excited about chapters 9 through 11. Like, no preachers are like, I can't wait to preach 9 through 11. Although 10's got some good stuff in it, but like, we don't get super excited about it. And if you're reading through Romans, a lot of times we'll skip over this stuff. And I think there's a reason for it. I think the reason is that Paul is answering a question here that we don't, all, we don't ask anymore. He's, he's answering a question for the Roman Christians that 2,000 years later in Western society, we're not really asking that question. We're asking the big question, but we're not asking the more specific question. And uh, because of that, we're not as interested in what Paul has to say here. But it is the inspired word of God, and there is some value here for us. If we can understand what is Paul saying to the Roman church, it might have a word for us uh, today. So I want to give you just a little bit of context about this, okay? Some background, if you will. The guy who wrote this letter, and this is a letter to the Roman Christians... They were majority Gentile, which just means they were non-Jewish. But Paul was a Jew. So the, the guy who wrote the letter was Jewish. And not only that, he was part of the strictest sect of Judaism. He was part of a group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the strictest set of Judaism. They were strictly obedient to the law. They were you know, highly, highly religious folks. Paul was so zealous about his faith that before he became a Christian... He spent his time tracking down and persecuting Christians. So Paul was very zealously opposed to the Christian faith until he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And when he met Jesus, he became a follower of the Christian faith. When he became a follower of the Christian faith, as you can imagine, here's this very zealous um, Pharisee who's persecuting the Christians. And then suddenly he becomes a Christian. Well, you can imagine that a lot of people in the Christian church were like, yeah. I don't trust that Paul guy. <laughs> you know, like I, I'm not sure that he really is who he says he is. And if you read through the book of Acts, you'll see that there was some mistrust of Paul among some early Christians. It took a while to overcome that. You'll also see that he stirred up a lot of trouble everywhere he went because he would go around to these different cities and he would preach in the synagogues and he would preach that Jesus is the Messiah. And so um, he stirred up a lot of trouble. And then even in the church... Paul might have been considered, among the Jewish believers, Paul might have been considered a traitor to his nation because Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles. So he began taking the gospel to the Gentiles, which many Jewish people thought, that's impossible. How could a Gentile be saved? You can't possibly. And so he began broadening the gospel. The gospel is for all, and all people are a part of God's promise. And on top of all of that, he taught that you didn't have to obey the law of Moses in order to be a Christian. And that was a major controversy in the early church. You did not have to, to be circumcised. You did not have to um, obey the law of Moses in order to be a Christian. And so it was like, wow. Um, Paul would have, you know, he's never been to Rome, but his reputation would have preceded him. And it's very possible that a lot of people would see Paul as kind of an enemy of the Jewish faith because of all these things he's doing. And right at the beginning, in chapter 9, he explains... Uh, Look at it. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. So Paul's going to kind of establish at the very outset here that I'm, I'm still Jewish. 
And I still love my people. Matter of fact, my heart breaks for my people. And he describes his people, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human history, ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Now, these verses tie what Paul says in 9, 10, and 11 to what he said in 8. Because you remember what he said in 8 last week. What he said in chapter 8 was, he said that we have been adopted into the family of God. And he's talking about we, all of us, the Gentiles. We're the Gentiles. We're non-Jewish. We have been adopted into the family of God. We have been made heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. If you know anything about the Old Testament, that's exactly what God promised the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He promised that they were adopted into his family. They were heirs of him. They, They were going to receive the inheritance. And that's what Paul goes through there. Like they, they had the covenant established through Abraham. They had the covenant established through Moses. They received the law through Moses. They had the temple worship. The temple was the place that God resided. They believed the actual physical, you know, literal presence of God resided in the temple. So they had the presence of God with them. Um, they had the patriarchs. They had the ancestry that brought the Messiah. The Messiah came from the line of King David. And so the Jewish people were a chosen and elect people. They were God's special people. They had a special relationship with God, and they were going to receive the inheritance of God. But then in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, actually, that's true, but actually, that's going to go to all the Gentiles as well. The promise that God made with his special people, his elect people, is actually applicable to everyone who accepts God on the basis of faith. Not just the Jewish people, but everyone who accepts God on the basis of faith. Now, if you're in the early church, if your only scripture is the Hebrew scripture, if you're a Jewish believer or a Gentile believer, the question you'd be asking at the end of Romans chapter 8 is this. Then did God get it wrong in the Old Testament? And they they didn't call it the Old Testament. They called it the Bible. (laughs) You know, the scriptures. Were the scriptures wrong then? In God's promise to the people of Israel, because now this is being expanded to every. So, did, did God's plan fail? This plan that God had to redeem the world through His people of Israel, did God's plan somehow fail? Did God make a mistake? And that's what Paul's trying to answer in chapter 9, 10, and 11. He's trying to answer a question that they would have been asking. And I said we don't ask that question anymore. We do ask that question, just not about Israel, but we still ask that question Did God's plan somehow fail? And Paul's answer is a resounding, no, it did not fail. And I'm going to save you reading all 90 verses here. I'll give you a quick summary of it, that God's plan did not fail. Romans 9 is about Israel's past. Romans 10 is about their present. Romans 11 is about their future. And in Romans 9, he goes through their past election. And he, everything he just said, he describes that they were the chosen people of God. They are the chosen people of God. But their election was not based on their physical descendancy it was based on their spiritual descendancy and this is a complicated argument but here's what he says he says it's not as though god's word has failed for not all who descended from israel are israel nor because of they his descendants are they all abraham's children on the contrary it's through isaac that your offspring will be reckoned in other words it is not the children by physical descent who are god's children but it is the children of promise who are regarded as abraham's offspring 
So he, Paul is saying, you know, just because you were born of Israel doesn't mean that you're God's elect. It, it didn't have anything to do with your physical descendancy. It has to do with your spiritual descendancy. God's elect is everyone who believes in him by faith. And that's why this can be extended to the Gentiles. And this was always part of his plan. If you read the Old Testament carefully, if you read the prophecy, this was always part of his plan. See, Isaac was not the firstborn, he, but he received the inheritance. And then later he talks about Esau. Esau was not the firstborn. But he received the inheritance because the inheritance is based on faith, not on physical uh, descendancy. And this explains how everybody could be children of Abraham. So then in Romans 10, he talks about Israel's present rejection of that. Because Israel, much of Israel, had rejected that. And many of the Jewish people had rejected that. And this verse right here is really powerful if you try to bring it forward to today. So what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness has obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? In other words, he says, the Gentiles weren't looking for righteousness, and they found it. The Jews were looking for righteousness, and they didn't find it. Why? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled. This ought to sound real familiar. Any of you who grew up in a, in a really um, fundamentalist, legalist type church background, this ought to sound really, really familiar. They pursued it not by faith. They pursued a righteousness, which means be, be made right. They pursued a righteousness not by faith, but by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And he quotes an Old Testament passage here, but I want to jump to verse 1. He says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God. For the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify for them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So he says the, the reason they didn't find righteousness was because they tried to do it by themselves. They thought it was their good works, it was their correct doctrine that made them right with God. And I don't care how correct your doctrine is, it does not make you right with God. And I don't care how good your works are, it does not make you right with God. We, we can never be made right with God on the basis of our works. We can only be made right with God through faith alone. And this is the thing that many of the Jewish believers didn't get. And here we are 2,000 years later. It's still kind of, oh, you got to knock us in the head a little bit to try to get us to get this. But it's, that's not what makes us right with God is faith alone. And he, again, go back to the first of Romans, he's reminding us that just because you're a Church of Christ Christian or just because you're a Baptist Christian or just because you're a Reformed Christian or just because you're a Catholic Christian or whatever it is, that doesn't make you any better than the other Christians. It's all based on faith. And everybody who by faith accepts Jesus as their Savior are part of the inheritance, are part of the, the, the promise given to Abraham. Paul is widening this door and making everybody a part of the promise. So how do you become a part of the promise then? If you're not born into it, as the Jewish people believe they were, you're not born into it, and you can't obtain it through good works, and you can't obtain it through correct doctrine, how do you, how do you become part of the inheritance? How do you become a Christian? How do you receive the great promises that God is promising us? And he tells us, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Period. That's what he says. It's with your heart you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth you profess your faith and you're saved. 
As Scripture declares, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a powerful, powerful promise. Everyone who calls on the name. If you believe in your heart and you confess him as Lord, you will be saved. Well, what about this? What about this criteria? What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? No, that, that's it. That's it. Those who believe in the name of the Lord. Not everyone, there's no difference. And anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And then he goes on in chapter 11 and he describes how he hopes all of Israel will one day be redeemed. And, he, and it's a pretty complicated argument in chapter 11 because he talks about grafted branches and engrafted branches and all this stuff. He basically says, you know, Israel's rejection had a purpose. Because of Israel's rejection, I could take the, the gospel to the Gentiles. Because Israel rejected the gospel and therefore it let me have the opportunity to take it to the Gentiles. So you Gentiles shouldn't be arrogant because you're receiving the gospel because of Israel's rejection. Because God's plans are always at work and God's plans never fail. I, here's the only part of chapter 11 I'm going to share with you is the doxology at the end. Because here's the way he ends. This whole 90 verses, three chapters, this whole complicated argument about Israel's past and their present and future. And some of you right now may be sitting there going, I am so lost. <laughs> I don't have a clue what you're talking about. This is, I am so lost. Here's the way he ends this whole argument. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has ever given to God that God should repay them? From him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This reminds me of parts of Job. Because in other words, here's what Paul's saying here to his readers in Rome. If you don't understand all this stuff, that's okay. I'm not sure I understand all this stuff. I mean, it just, he's just basically saying, like, who can know God's plan and God's mind? He just wants us to be assured that in Romans 9, verse 6, God's plan never fails. And we talked about this last week. And this is a great example. These three chapters are a great example of this. God's plan never fails. God's people sometimes do. So God's plan with the nation of Israel did not fail. The nation of Israel failed. God's plan with the church did not and will not fail. God's people fail. I mean, it, it, but it, God's plan does not fail. So Douglas Moo in his commentary, I, I read this after I'd studied all through this, this whole thing about Israel and all the history and the background and all that, and I was feeling really good about myself. And <laughs> Douglas Moo said, actually, chapters 9 through 11 are not about Israel. They're about God. Like chapters 9 and 11 is not really about Israel's story. It's really about God's story and how God's plans never fail. Even when his people do, God's plans never fail. So, where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us here. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you're willing to confess him as Lord, then you receive the promises of Jesus. And the promises of Jesus is freedom from sin, freedom from shame, and the gift of eternal life. 
You want to talk about, Deborah talked about peace and for our communion meditation. You want to talk, that's where peace comes from. Peace comes from knowing that I'm free from sin, I'm free from shame, and I have the gift of eternal life. And Bible promises that to all who believe in Jesus. And so if you, if you believe in him, you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and you're willing to confess that, we think the simplest way to do that is through baptism. Not, not as a, a work, but a response of faith. Baptism is a response of faith in which I participate. You know, when, you, when somebody's baptized, there's a baptism this morning. I'm not sure if the heat was on, uh, guys, so I, I do apologize for that. <laughs> I, was, I was worried. You can tell me after service. But there was a baptized this morning. When you're baptized, that is symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus. And one of the things you say before you're baptized is, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? This is another way of asking, do you believe Jesus is the Lord? And you say yes to that question. And it's on that basis that we're, that we're saved. That's the basis by which we're saved. And um, so if you've never done that, I want, I want to encourage you to think about doing that. It, I want, if you believe in Jesus, you're ready to be baptized. You're like, yeah, but I haven't got my life. Kind of, I, got, I need to straighten a few things out first. No, that's why you need to be baptized. You, don't, that, you get an order reversed. You don't get it straightened out and then come to Jesus. You don't get cleaned up and then come to Jesus. You come to Jesus because you need to get it straightened out. And you come to Jesus because you need to get it cleaned up. All right? Because you can't do it anyway. You've been trying. You can't do it. So if, you, if you're ready to, if you believe in Jesus, you're ready to be baptized, there's a card. You can fill out that card and just drop it in those collections or bring it to me after services either way. Uh, if you're already Christian, you're already a believer, can I ask you to do something then? Just believe that. If you're already a believer, just believe that and live in the assurance that we do have the gift of eternal life and we are part of the promise. We are heirs of, of God and co-heirs with Christ and we are adopted into his family as, as children. Just believe that. If we believed that, it would change the way we live. Let me pray about that and we'll be dismissed. Let me pray. Father, I, I pray that you... Uh, I pray you help us. There's so many... We have so many conflicting messages that get in here, and some of them are, are from us, and some of them are from parents, and some of them are from elders that we didn't even know, but they implanted some messages in our mind, or some of them were from pastors that we didn't really even know that well, but we heard them say something on the stage, and it implanted these scripts in our mind, and God, help us to believe your word over the word of any man including our relatives and including our spiritual leaders. We, we believe your word over any of those other words. And what your word says is true and your promises do not fail and your plans do not fail. So help us to believe that and to live that in our lives. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. If you are encouraged by today's talk, feel free to share it with your friends. Please also consider rating and subscribing on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please visit us online at murrayhills.com.